Shalom, Salam, and welcome to the History of the Land of Israel podcast. I am Shail Ben Ephraim, and I welcome you to the one podcast with the guts to survey the most provocative historical narrative in the world. Episode 13, The King of Byblos at a Loss. Byblos was already important to Egyptians in the Old Kingdom days. The city is located on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, 20 miles from Beirut. Today it is named Jubail and has a population of about 100,000. Let's first uh, have a few words about the name. We call the city Byblos because most Western scholars do. But that's the Greek name for the Mediterranean town. It's not the original name, and it's not the current name. The Arabs call the city Jabail, which is much closer to its original name. In Phoenician, the town was called Jabal, but archaeologists refer to the ancient form of the location as Byblos, and so will we, for convenience sake. Now get this, the city was well known for its involvement in the papyrus trade with Egypt. Since early books were made from papyrus, often obtained from Byblos, the word book originated from the name of the city. And that is where the word Bible comes from. Who knew? Not me. Later on, the city would become associated with the Phoenicians. But they had not arrived on the scene in the period that I'm going to cover in this episode. At this time, the people of Byblos were northern Canaanites, in many ways indistinguishable culturally from the Canaanites in what today is Israel. In tablets preserved from Byblos, their king refers to the broader land as Canaan and himself as one of the kings of Canaan. So he saw himself as part of that culture. Byblos was very prosperous during the era of the Middle Kingdom. The secret to the prosperity and importance of the city was its location. You see, it was situated near the ocean, or near the sea, I should say, and surrounded on all sides by thick forest. That may not sound like much of an advantage. Like, dude, have you heard of Lyme disease? And how can you have a picnic with all those bears around? But it was an incredible stroke of luck for Byblos. As you know, the most significant power in the region at this time was Egypt. Now, the pharaohs were also geographically blessed. I mean, food almost grew itself on the Nile. But one thing they didn't have much of in Egypt is timber. Starting to connect the dots? Indeed, the rise of Byblos as an important urban center is intimately linked to its trade with Egypt. Until 3000 BCE, it was an unremarkable settlement, reliant on agriculture and fishing for subsistence. When the Egyptians started trading with them, the economy began to focus on exports, mostly to those luxury, hungry Nile dwellers. So olive oil and wine flowed out of Byblos like, um, like wine. But above all, right from the start, it was timber that jump-started the economy. Meanwhile, the people of Byblos, as they came in contact with the Egyptians, were in awe of their culture and the technological advances that allowed for the construction of, say, the pyramids. As a result, Byblos masonry shows an unmistakable Egyptian influence in aesthetics and technique, starting with the earliest exposure to the Egyptians. Moreover, the intellectual elite in the city took pride in their ability to produce hieroglyphics. The Lebanese town even adopted the god Toph as one of their own, and he became part of the pantheon, even though most Canaanites did not worship that god or other Egyptian gods. Indeed, 
a class of Egyptianized elites emerged during the early Bronze Age. However, Egyptian practices never really displaced the local ones. Although some attempts at copying Egyptian burial rites in Canaan and in Byblos in particular can be seen, generally speaking, the Canaanite traditions triumphed and the city remained a Canaanite city. But the mutual admiration between Egypt and Byblos, and it was to an extent mutual, was based on an economic and military alliance. The Egyptians often provided Byblos with gifts for the local temples, a sign of treating them almost as equals. That's a rare compliment indeed from Old Kingdom Egyptians. The rising importance of Byblos and the destruction of Arad, which was a mining town in south of Israel, we talked about that a little bit in a previous episode, changed the center of gravity in the Canaanite economy. The center shifted north. And Bet Sha'an, Megiddo, Tyre, Beirut, and in particular, Byblos, became the center of activity, while Canaan, in what we today call Israel, was bypassed, at least for a while. And that's why we're focusing on Byblos right now. We're going to talk about the religion of Byblos and the religion of the Canaanites in general uh, in future episodes, and we're really going to focus on the link between that and the early Israelite religion. But we do need to talk a little bit about the gods that they worshipped in Byblos in order to make sense of this uh, episode. So, one of the uh, deities that Byblos worshipped and um, that was very popular in Canaan in general was Baalat. She was known as the Lady of Byblos. She is the same goddess often identified elsewhere as Astarte. Her male consort was Baal, a deity with a powerful influence on the region as well. There are very similar motifs in the mythology of Egypt to the ones that we see in Canaan. Um, the creation stories in both involve monsters, fighting warriors and goddesses, and their relations with their sons. Finding the exact link between Egyptian mythology, Canaanite mythology, Mesopotamian mythology is difficult. But it's clear that there is a connection. Donald B. Redford put it beautifully when he wrote, Egypt and the Levant, in a way they scarcely realized, were joint heirs five millennia ago to a powerful and elemental creation narrative, which in one form or another is still with us today. So what he's saying is that all these different religions came from a shared source. We don't really fully understand what that source is, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in the future. And that's one of the reasons these different cultures easily recognized each other's gods and traditions, because they had so much in common. And we'll unpack that a bit in this episode. Now, the most prominent religious spot in Byblos was the Temple of Baalat. It was the largest and most complex temple in the early Bronze Age in all of Lebanon. There are many links to Egyptian culture in that temple and elsewhere enough to convince some that this was a full-on Egyptian cult in existence. So, what do we know about Baalat, the goddess that the temple was dedicated to? So, as we said, she was a local variation on 
Astarte, or as she's known in the Tanakh, Ashtoret, the Canaanite goddess of sexual love and fertility. But she's also associated with war, so there's an interesting duality there. She would later bedevil the biblical Israelites in more ways than one. She was the favorite of the Philistines, and the armor of the dead king Saul was taken to her temple in the book of Samuel. Even worse, many Israelites continued to worship her instead of the one true God. Here is an example from the book of Judges. And the Israelites did what was offensive to the Lord. They worshipped the Baalim and forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed other gods from the people around them and bowed to them. They provoked the Lord. They forsook the Lord and worshipped Baal and Ashtoreth. Even King Solomon introduced her worship to the temple. And we will see when we talk about the Israelites that she remained popular in their ranks for a long time. So there's a reason she often features in the Tanakh. Anyway, back to Byblos. She was undoubtedly the leading goddess of the elites there, as the biggest and wealthiest temples were dedicated to her. The kings of Byblos also obsessively mentioned her in every correspondence. And the Lady of Byblos also played a significant role in relations with Egypt. You see, the Egyptians accepted her and identified her with Hathor, that Egyptian goddess who was the symbolic mother of the pharaoh. She represented music, dance, joy, love, sexuality, and maternal care. In other words, the full embodiment of Egyptian concepts of femininity. She was like the Egyptian Taylor Swift. The role of the syncretism of Hathor in Egyptian Byblos relations is essential to our story. The Egyptian recognition of her may have played a role in lifting Baalat over the other Canaanite deities in the city. So Baalat Jabal in this context must not be overlooked. There might have been a political reason that she was placed above the others because the Egyptians could relate her to Hathor. Anyway, Back to the temple. There are apparent similarities in construction style and technique between the temple and the Saqqara complex built in Egypt during the Third Dynasty. And that's led to some speculation that either Egyptian builders built the temple or there was a strong influence in construction. But some experts dismiss this as idle speculation. For example, D. Espinel says that while there are similarities, quote, these resemblances are, in our opinion, highly debatable. The temple shows, above all, the typical characteristics of temples of the Syro-Palestinian and Mesopotamian style. There certainly is a hybrid there. So it's unclear how much of an Egyptian influence there was. But Egyptian cultic items found in the temple indicate the connection better. You can find flat-topped circular tables there. These items, usually made of alabaster, were used for everyday funerary objects in Egypt, but Canaanite tradition was very different and had nothing like it. However, no Egyptian-style necropolis has ever been found in Byblos. The cultural influence in the city never went that far. They never went, you know, full Egyptian. But the Egyptian origin 
of those items is indisputable. One even reads, quote, and this is kind of broken, the, the king of upper and lower Egypt, of the two ladies, beloved of the two lands, the son of Rapepi one, has made his endowment for, and then it's cut off. Indeed, Pepi one, one of the kings of the older kingdom period, features in many of the inscriptions throughout the temple. A lot of stone vessels from the 4th up till the 6th dynasties are found throughout the city. You may wonder what they're doing there. Well, these were some of the most desirable Egyptian exports of the era. Their transport was pretty easy, and they were made of precious materials, like I said, alabaster. In addition, the expert crafters in the workshops of Memphis put luxury products like oil or ointments in them as well. The existence of hieroglyphic inscriptions on some of these vessels gave them even greater value in international trade and the diplomatic circuits. Remember that Egypt was the height of culture at the time, and having items from there was a sign of class and sophistication. It was just a cool thing to have, and very few people in Byblos at that time could read hieroglyphics, very few people could read to begin with, and they were speaking more um, of an Akkadian form of cuneiform, and we'll talk about that. For them, it was just a cool thing to have. You know how some people get tattoos in Chinese or, and this really pains me, Hebrew letters without any idea of what it means? To them, hieroglyphics had that kind of cultural cachet. Because of that, because they didn't really care what it said, the dates on which the tablets were issued and the inscriptions on them don't really tell us when they arrived in Biblos. Because of their status as cultural artifacts and curiosities, they may have been brought into the city long after the death of the relevant kings. Indeed, they would have been of lower value in Egypt later on, and therefore more likely to be sold after the fact. Egyptian kings habitually got rid of artifacts that glorified their predecessors, especially when there was easy money involved. There's also another intriguing possibility. The Egyptian cult of, of Baal-Jabal during the Old Kingdom could imply the presence of artisans building or decorating the temple. That's suggested by an inscription discovered in the Temple of the Obelisk, another temple in Byblos. If so, the labor would probably have been paid for in wood, which, as we know, the Egyptians loved. The problem is, we know very little about the political system in Byblos at this time. We know very little about its economy. Everything about Byblos in the era of the Old Kingdom is... Uh, a bit vague. We have to infer from what we know about later eras, especially the Middle Kingdom. Now, in the Amarna letters, King Rib Adi of Byblos often headed his messages wishing that the goddess of Byblos would protect the Pharaoh. That means she was the official deity of the city-state. It is most likely the goddess also enjoyed similar stature in the earlier periods. The large temple to Baal-Jabal is evidence that she was already critical in society during the Old Kingdom. Now, by the Middle Kingdom, as we'll see at length, Byblos had recognized its subordination to Egypt. However, that may not have been true in this earlier period. They may have retained 
a bit more independence, or even a lot more independence. We know a lot more about the Middle Kingdom. So in between, we know there was an intermediate period, right? We talked about it previously. When the intermediate period occurred, Canaan went into its golden age. But Byblos fell on hard times. And that makes sense because they were so heavily dependent on trade with the Old Kingdom. So you can really see the contrast there. The elites of Byblos profited deeply from Egyptian imperialism, while the Canaanites were stifled by it. This is typical of future colonialism, with clear winners and losers among the natives. But Byblos didn't crumble. It would somehow survive challenge after challenge for thousands of years, remaining one of the longest-standing cities in the world. And trade and uh, close political relations with Egypt resumed when the Middle Kingdom gained power. How close were relations once the Middle Kingdom came about? Tombs found at this time have Egyptian writing. They also described the individuals within them through Egyptian titles. So they were calling their officials by Egyptian titles. The cultural influence reached an incredible apex during the Middle Kingdom. Now, to some archaeologists, this suggests Byblos was an Egyptian colony. Montet even described the city as a, quote, petite Egypte, with an E at the end for some reason. But others describe the relationship differently. One archaeologist says there is some indication that Byblos was de facto autonomous, although it officially saw itself as an Egyptian domain. But none of this sounds right to me. Byblos was far away from Egypt, and in a sphere where other powers were closer, whether we're talking about the Hittites, the Mitanni, there's also no evidence that the Egyptians ever had to suppress uprisings in the area or anything like that. In fact, as we'll see, they were pretty hesitant to get involved there at all. In addition, there's compelling evidence that the kings of Byblos ran an independent foreign policy vis-a-vis other actors. In the Mari archives, there are documents detailing the relations between that city-state and Byblos. Significantly, in the Mari archive letters, the leader of Byblos is always addressed as king. Meanwhile, in other cases, they call local chieftains, quote, rulers. That matters. Because if you're under the direct rule of a pharaoh and someone calls you king, you're undermining Egyptian authority, and that's not a good idea. You have to show due deference and explain all the time that the local ruler is inferior to the living god. But if they're not an Egyptian colony, you don't have to worry about those niceties. We also learn quite a bit from an inscription on the grave of Knomhotep III. It refers to the friction between Byblos and Ulaza and how Egypt resolved it. That text refers to the king of Byblos as, quote, this ruler of Byblos, the king. The need to mediate and the relative respect that the Egyptians showed, remember, the Egyptians didn't really respect foreigners, so it's all relative, also indicate a certain degree of autonomy. So I'm not buying that it was a colony in any sense that we recognize today, but they were protected by the Egyptians to some extent. And we'll see that in much more detail. See, in my opinion, what kept the relations between Egypt and Byblos going 
wasn't military force or political subjugation. Instead, it was a combination of money and cultural prestige. The money is obvious, coming from the timber, good relations with Egypt means prosperity. But there's more. Human nature is such that when a culture is perceived as somehow superior, we copy it. A lot of this process is just dumb imitation. But some of it is political and elite-driven. Higginbotham explains that elites emulate other cultures to cement their power by, quote, linking themselves to cultural centers. In that way, local rulers are often able to enhance their stature and authority. Quote, end quote. That means that they're using the supremacy of Egyptian culture in order to make the subjects under them feel inferior. So we see that the Egyptian objects in Byblos consist primarily of prestige goods, such as pendants, bracelets, and rings. We also see it used for elite titles and documents. As we said, anything with hieroglyphs was considered cool, even if the people who bought it had no idea what it said. But more than that, if you had Egyptian artifacts, if you used Egyptian titles, it showed that you were superior to the regular people, just like Egypt was superior to Byblos. It's important to put Egyptian influence on Byblos into context. There were Egyptian artifacts probably in every city in Canaan. In Lebanon, in Syria, Egyptian influence was paramount all over. But what's unique about the city is how many artifacts there are and how closely linked the elite was to Egyptian culture. No other Levantine site presents a similar amount of Egyptianized evidence strongly, strongly related to its rulers and to the state. And the fact that Egyptian influence lasted even though the first intermediate period saw the waning of Egyptian power dramatically is another sign of the strength of this influence and its voluntary nature. After all, during the intermediate period, it's very unlikely that there was much contact between Egypt and Biblos. The great thing about discussing relations between Biblos and Egypt is that unlike all the topics we've talked about so far, we finally have reliable records. The earliest diplomatic records we have in the world, the first form of international documents ever, are the Amarna letters. And as a former diplomatic historian, I find them very exciting. They're a spectacular find because they are primary sources in the complete sense of the word. The people who wrote them weren't writing a story. They weren't writing a narrative for future generations. They were communicating with their peers. They were trying to get things done. So we can learn a lot about their times and how they saw the world inadvertently. The letters were written in a form of Babylonian cuneiform, a form of writing which was developed during the Neolithic era. Now we're interested in this archive because it includes several letters from Byblos to Egypt and a couple of letters from Egypt to Byblos. The letters are named after a plain on the east bank of the Nile, about 190 miles from Cairo. It was there that Pharaoh Akhenaten made his capital. By the way, his wife and possible co-regent Nefertiti is far more famous than he is today. She's also the namesake of my favorite Miles Davis album. Tony Williams' drumming there is to die for. The couple moved to Amarna in order to weaken the priestly class and start a new state religion, 
dedicated to the sun disk and that god alone. That is why this pharaoh is known for his contribution to monotheism, and we'll discuss that aspect in future episodes when we talk about the roots of monotheism. What's important to know here is that the pharaohs of this time were obsessed with religious reform. They were managing a lot of unrest due to their far-reaching and ultimately failed internal reforms. So they weren't very busy or attentive to foreign affairs. That's something you're going to see pretty clearly from the story I'm about to tell you. Let me also point out that during this story, Akhenaten was replaced by a succession of unsuccessful short-lived pharaohs. So we don't always know the identity of the Egyptian king involved. I want to tell you a story about Byblos, a story I love. And it's the first real story I can tell you using a Canaanite voice. Until now, we had to rely on the weird impressions the Egyptians had of them. This story centers on one character, the king of Byblos, one Ribhada. What do we know about this guy? Not much. I know I'd like to know more. His name is Akkadian in origin, but he was culturally Canaanite. He was alive in 1353 BCE, and for a little while after, when the events recorded here occurred. He had kids, but doesn't seem like he had any grandchildren, and he appears to have been established in his rule, although we don't know how many years he'd been king when the events recorded here began. Rib was involved in a war against savages, or at least he considered them to be savages, led by a man named Abdi Asirta, who he didn't like very much, and he referred to constantly as, quote, a servant and a dog. I will read you some select bits from these letters. They are awesome. Here's an example. I fall at the feet of my lord, my son, seven times, and seven times more. May the king, my lord, know that Gubla, the royal maidservant of the king, is safe and sound. Now, just a note, the Amarna letters are filled with flattery that would make North Korean politicians blush with shame. But Ribhada was in a league of his own with the ass-kissing. He occasionally referred to the pharaoh with almost erotic longing. Quote, It is good for me to be with you. What can I do by myself? This is what I long for day and night. Also, quote, note that I am dirt at your feet, noted. And my personal favorite, quote, I am a footstool for the feet of the king, end quote. Before we go on, a little word about terminology. The letters will occasionally use the term apiru. That word is a word the Egyptians and Babylonians used to describe bandits and nomads who were a threat to order. They use this word kind of the way states today dispense of the term terrorist. It's kind of a catch-all for anything they can't control that uses violence that they hate. I will talk more about that concept in a future episode. But let's get back to Byblos. Ribhada informed the pharaoh that he was fighting these bandits, and it wasn't going very well. Quote, the war of the Apiru forces against me is extremely severe, so may the king not neglect his cities. In his following letter, the king of Byblos was more specific about what he needed to fight the Apiru threat. Quote, Urge with loud cries, the king your lord, that if archers come out this year, I will be able to make peace. 
quote, end quote. In the following letter, the king made sure that if the message hadn't been clear, it would be, quote, the land longs day and night for the archers, end quote. Poetic. The pharaoh seems to have finally agreed to send some archers, but not enough. If you give Ribhada the finger, he wants the whole darn hand. I don't have to tell you. You know how he rolls. Apparently, the king of Byblos figured he had milked the pharaoh for all he was worth. So his following letter appeals to his principal advisor, Haya. He started with a complaint referring to previous correspondence that hadn't survived. Quote, you are a wise man. The king knows this. Why have you been negligent? not speaking to the king, so he will send archers. Then he got to the reason he was bugging Haya. Quote, send me 50 pairs of horses and 200 infantry. I may resist him in Sigata until the coming forth of the archers. It appears that Ribhada's main concern was not for the safety of Byblos, at least not at this point. As another letter explains, it was his influence in the small towns in the region that he was concerned about. He believed the mayors there were terrified of the evil Abdi Asirta, who had raided them. Therefore, they had told Ribhada, quote, he will do the same thing to us, and all the land will be joined to Apiru, end quote. Appealing to the lowly non-Pharaoh advisors didn't work. So, Ribhada returned to bugging the Pharaoh. This time he laid on the guilt thick and deep. Listen to this. Quote, Behold, the war of Apiru against me is severe. As the gods of your land are alive and well, our sons and daughters, as well as ourselves, are gone, since they have been sold in the land of Yarimuta for provisions to keep us alive. For lack of a cultivator, my field is like a woman without a husband. End quote. And I can't tell you how many times he would repeat that, for lack of a cultivator, my field is like a woman without a husband. I'll leave it to gender studies scholars to figure out the uh, importance of that for Biblos culture. More than anything else, though, Ribhada was afraid for his own life. He noted that his enemy had been telling townsfolk to, quote, kill your leader, and then you will be like us and at peace. He admitted, quote, I am very afraid, since there is no one who will save me from them. Like a bird in a trap, so am I in Byblos. Why have you neglected your country? I have written like this to the palace, but you do not heed my words, End quote. Pretty soon, Byblos was left with only two cities. Things looked dire. Ribhada was getting far more direct and accusatory in his letters. Quote, Your garrison city has been joined to Apiru, and you have done nothing. You are a great lord. You must not neglect this message. End quote. The pharaoh did write back, We don't have the message, but apparently he asked for copper and other resources in exchange for help. As you can imagine, Ribhada was not happy with this request. Quote, May the Lord of Byblos be witness. There is no copper available to her or me, unjustly treated ones. You yourself should know the straits I am in. End quote. Now for the first time, he asked to be rescued personally. Quote, 
If my lord is negligent and there are no archers, then let a ship fetch the men of Byblos, so I can abandon Byblos. Look, I am afraid the peasantry will strike me down. If his letters can believe, be believed, Ribhada was right to be concerned. He wrote to the pharaoh in a later letter, quote, A man with a bronze dagger attacked me, but I killed him. In another letter, he claimed to have been stabbed nine times. But honestly, I feel like that is something you might mention in the first letter. Now he gave the pharaoh an ultimatum. Quote, If within two months there are no archers, I will abandon the city, and my life will be safe while I do what I want to do. End quote. I know Rib Hada likes to exaggerate, but I believe him. This guy was over it. And in his following letter, he threatened to even join forces with Abdi Asirta. The pharaoh did not like this and started to ghost Ribhada. Now he started to complain. Quote, I keep writing to the palace for what I need. Why don't you reply? So I may know what to do until the king arrives and visits his royal servants. End quote. Soon the pharaoh told a messenger from Byblos that he did not plan to, se to send help at all. Did that shut Ribhada up? Of course not. His new plan was that the pharaoh come personally and they fight together. Quote, Let an elite force with chariots advance with you, and that I may come out with it, but be on your guard, for if you die, I must die too. End quote. He was angry, but still had his flattery A-game. As enticing as that may have sounded to the pharaoh, he ignored this plea as well. In his following message, the king of Byblos reminded the Egyptians of the past. Quote, Look, Byblos is not like other cities. Byblos is a loyal city to my king, my lord, from ancient times. End quote. After about two years of fighting, only the city of Byblos was left unconquered. All of its hinterland was gone. Having despaired of receiving troops, the beleaguered king now asked, quote, Pay a thousand shekels of silver and a hundred shekels of gold, so that he will go away from me. End quote. Speaking of uh, his enemy, Abdi Asirta. Finally, the beloved pharaoh deigned to lift a finger and help Byblos. He didn't send forces himself, but he did do the following. He sent word to Beirut, Tyre and Sidon to send auxiliary troops to help. So far, all the tablets have been sent from Byblos to Egypt. The responses from uh, the Pharaoh were not recorded or were not found. But finally, we have a record of one of the Pharaoh's replies. In it, he asks for tribute in exchange for finally sending troops. The tone is imperious and commanding. Quote, Prepare your daughter for the king, your lord, and prepare the contributions. First-class slaves, silver, chariots, first-class horses. So let the king say to you, this is excellent, and know that the king is hail like the sun in the sky, for his troops and chariots are multitude, and all go very well. End quote. Look, I know he was a living god, but what an ego. And where did he expect Ribhada to get all that money and horses after losing the vast majority of his territory? Finally, at this point, Ribhada 
caught a break. Troops from some of the other cities killed Abdi Asirta, you know, the servant, the dog. But Byblos wasn't lucky for long. The other cities made peace with the sons of the servant dog, and once again, Byblos was on its own. To make matters worse, the kingdom of Mitanni, a legitimate regional power, was now on the sun's side. The pharaoh was now sick of the continuing demands of Byblos. He is quoted as asking, why only Byblos keeps asking for help, and none of the other cities did. He also asked why Ribhada was writing, quote, treasonous words. I'm not sure what he was referring to, but I think he was just trying to tell the annoying Canaanite king to buzz off. Soon the Hittites also turned against Byblos. As we will see, they would soon emerge as major rivals to Egyptian power in the Levant. But the only order the pharaoh gave was to, quote, guard yourself and guard the city of the king where you are. At this point, Ribhada realized that Egypt wasn't going to help him. He wasn't entirely sure why, but he had an idea it might be personal. So for the first time, he said something that may be considered noble. Quote, if the king hates this city, then let him abandon it. But if it me, let him dismiss me. Send a man of yours to guard it, end quote. In other words, if I'm the problem, I'll go. Just make sure to protect Byblos. Soon things got real. The city itself was in danger. Ribhada lamented, quote, From time immemorial, the gods have not departed Byblos. Now we must give up our gods. And there being no troops in the city to smite the servant, the evil dog, they cannot return. So the people in the city are left to gather provisions for themselves. A sad tale indeed. The Pharaoh could be forgiven for thinking that Byblos would survive this crisis too. The story of the boy who cried wolf comes to mind. But Ribhada's position had genuinely become untenable. Soon he went into exile in the city of Beirut. And who had exiled him? His own brother. High drama here. Quote, My brothers did me an injustice and despised me. End quote. Why had they done so? Ribhada blamed Egypt. Quote, When my brother saw that my messenger had come back empty-handed, he committed a crime and drove me from my city. End quote. He also reported with uncharacteristic stoicism that the enemy had taken his wife and two of his sons as hostage. Understandably, our friend now had an existential crisis. He admitted that, quote, I had committed sins against the gods, and therefore am not worthy of your presence. He also said, quote, I am old, and there is a serious illness in my body, end quote. He was a broken man. But though he had given up on himself, Ribhada still loved Byblos. So he asked that Egypt send troops to free it. He offered two reasons to do so. First, there was much gold there, and it all belonged to the Pharaoh. He basically admitted that he had lied when he said the city was penniless. But there were more important things to worry about now. He gave the Pharaoh another reason. If the king neglects the city, 
Of all the cities of Canaan, not one will remain his, end quote. Now, there may be some truth to that. Of all the Canaanite cities, none was as associated with Egypt as Byblos, as we discussed, from time immemorial. The next message from Byblos to Egypt didn't come from our old friend. Instead, it came from Ilirapi, a.k.a. the treacherous young brother. What was he asking the Pharaoh for? You guessed it, troops and help from Egypt. So what had happened to Ribhada? We aren't entirely sure. He never went back to Byblos, but he was mentioned in a later letter from the Pharaoh to the Amiru city. There he noted that Ribhada was in Sidon, probably having been thrown out of Beirut, when, quote, following your judgment, you gave him to some mayors. Were you ignorant of the treacherousness of these men? End quote. So clearly the Pharaoh was mad at whatever happened to Ribhada, and probably a little bit guilty about his neglect. My guess is his enemies took him hostage, possibly to shake down Ili Rapi. My guess is Ribhada died in captivity because his brother probably did not want him back. Unfortunately, his final thoughts about the Pharaoh are not recorded, but I bet they weren't quite as flattering as his letters were. Great story. But what do we learn from it about Byblos-Egyptian relations? First, Egypt didn't take much interest in the Canaanite city at that time. On the contrary, they appear to have done the absolute minimum to help, and even tried to shake Byblos down in their worst hour of need. Was this typical? I can't say for sure. Sadly, we don't have diplomatic records for other periods, just this one. But my guess is this was not the norm. I have two reasons to think that. First, this was a bizarre time in Egyptian history. The Amarna period was a time of religious fundamentalism and internal strife over religion and power. The Pharaoh had less interest and probably fewer resources to spare for foreign policy than most other administrations, both before and after. Indeed, the Pharaoh Akhenaten died during this period, and a period of instability soon followed. So all told, my guess is this was a low point in relations, and not typical of what was otherwise a close relationship. In addition, the deep connection between Egypt and Byblos would not have developed if Egypt had always acted this way. Ribhada spoke about how the neglect he suffered was different than how Egypt had treated his city in the past, and he had reasons to exaggerate and to lie, and he was certainly capable of doing both. But I believe him. The Egyptian temple, the adoption of the Lady of Byblos by the Egyptians, and of course, the interest in Byblos's timber, must have created a tighter alliance in the past. This is probably what led the ill-fated Ribhada to believe the pharaoh would come to his rescue and prevented him from making other plans before it was too late. On a personal note, I love the Amarna letters so much. Investing in a complete translation of them was legit the best investment I ever made, and I have several Juan Soto rookie cards. The letters reveal a fascinating world. The elite rulers of the powers in the Levant kept in close contact and correspondence. There were about 50 rulers on this social 
Webb. Though they hardly ever met, they, were, they mainly held a permanent office and secretariat in the other capitals through which they communicated. And in this system, the pharaoh of Egypt was easily the most powerful. However, the pharaohs couldn't be the omnipotent, all-powerful force they liked to portray themselves as. Here is a beautiful quote from Barry J. Kemp. The Egyptian battle scenes on temple walls reduced the international conflict to the level of absolute simplicity. Backed by the gods, the pharaoh smote helpless and impotent foes with impunity. The Amarna letters, however, drew the same pharaoh into a world of international vanity in which the price of acceptance as a star player was exposure to competition. Here, he was no longer a god. End quote. That is some good writing. So it's time to conclude this long, long episode. When we think of Byblos in Egypt, we need to keep the geographic position of this Lebanese city in mind. If you were in the south of Canaan, you probably had no choice but to submit to Egypt. We'll talk more about that in future episodes. But way up in Byblos, you had choices. They had more powerful Syrian city-states to ally with. Later on, they had the Hittites. They had the Mitanni. But Byblos chose not to go that route. They remained loyal to Egypt. They enjoyed three significant benefits from their alliance with it. First was the money. The Syrian states had less need for timber. I mean, they were also up in the highly forested north. Even if they had needed it, which they didn't, they didn't have the money and population numbers of big bad Egypt. The second factor was independence. Sometimes when you have a scary neighbor nearby, the best thing you can do is ally with a powerful empire far away. That became a real issue for Byblos when the Hittites showed up. Distant great powers are better in many ways. They'll protect you without dominating you. Think of the Eastern European countries in NATO. They cling to the US because it's powerful enough to protect them from Russia, but far enough to have little interest in oppressing them. Meanwhile, the Latin American stories are different. Third, the connection with Egypt gave Byblos a cachet because they had the superior quote-unquote culture. That allowed Byblos leaders to present themselves to their own people and the people around them as superior to their subjects. And the city was so closely tied to Egypt that when it faded from supremacy, Byblos started to recede into the ash heap of history. They were an afterthought to the Hellenic and Roman rulers of the era. Today, what remains is a small, unimportant town in Lebanon. But the story of Byblos scratches the surface of the Egyptian era in Canaan. It's a period that would see the rise also, among others, of the Israelites. But that will await future episodes. Now, as you remember, the podcast now has an email account. So if you have questions or comments, email me at historylandisrael at gmail.com. That's historylandisrael at gmail.com. Remember to follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And see you on the History of the Land of Israel podcast next time.